0: I'd invite you to remain standing for Abel for the reading of God's holy word. It's printed there for you in the bulletin, or if you'd like to turn there in your personal Bible. The reading of God's word this week comes from James chapter 5, the end of the book, near the end. Let us give real careful attention, for this is the holy and inspired word of the Lord. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated. Patience is a virtue, it's just not one of my virtues. We live in a world of impatience and restlessness today. Whether it's waiting in line at a restaurant or a coffee shop, it's waiting for our web browser or app to load, perhaps even with our children as they put their shoes on, as we wait in traffic coming home from work, as we lose our patience with our spouse after a long day. We are impatient in our sufferings, in our illnesses, in situations where it feels like there's no... Resolution on the horizon. And yet, despite in a world marked by impatience and restlessness, what we just read shows that James shows that it's possible for Christians, particularly Christians, with the hope they have in Christ, to be patient even in suffering, even in really difficult circumstances. We'll look at how James does this from this short little passage in just two points. We'll look at first the exhortation that he gives to his people, And then, secondly, we'll look at the examples he gives of people who suffered well with patience. So, what we want to see here is that immediately in verse 7, James draws this back to the previous passage in the beginning of chapter 5. He says, Be patient, therefore. This is how he links it back. In verses 1 through 6 of this chapter, he's given a warning to the rich, those who oppress God's people, those who oppress the righteous. And he's saying that their day is coming. They're coming. That it, they have fattened their heart for the day of slaughter. And yet the Lord says, even in the midst of the oppression, even in the midst of the suffering that the rich people have caused the Christians of James' day, he commends them. He says, therefore, in light of this, be patient, brothers. If the verse had just stopped there, we might think that James is telling them just to white-knuckle this, just to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's really not that bad. Stop complaining. Just be patient, Yet we see that's not what James does. He doesn't just give them a bare exhortation or imperative to be patient without linking it to any kind of substantive hope. He says, Be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. He links it to a promise, a fact, a reality of life. This coming of the Lord, we can think of this as Christ's second advent. We know that Christ came first in our flesh in his incarnation, accomplishing our salvation and that he conquered over sin and death and his resurrection, and he was with his disciples, and then he ascended to the right hand of his Father, and he reigns there now actively with all authority over heaven and earth. And yet God's word tells us time and time again that Christ will still return a second time, that he'll make all things new, that he'll bring a glory to the new heavens and the new earth. And so James tells them to reflect on this fact. In the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their hardships, he says them to be patient. This is a type of active command that he gives them because he links it to the fact of the coming of the Lord. He's showing them that this life is not all that there is, that the sufferings will not be endless, that there will be a day that Christ will return to his people He will make all things new and it will be the end of suffering and the trials of this life as we know them. He commends them to be patient, to think about this actively, to set their hearts and their hopes on the reality of that day, for that will indeed be a great day when Christ returns for his people. It need not be a day where Christ's people fear that Christ will come in his wrath to us But if we are in Christ and resting in him and his righteousness, looking to him in faith alone for our salvation, we anticipate that that's a day of triumph and mercy for God's people where our savior will return and he will pronounce his mercy and kindness on his people and welcome them into his eternal glory where we will will see him face to face. And so James commends them to think about this reality to interpret their present reality in light of this future reality, and in drawing on that hope and thinking about that, to be patient, that the sufferings will come to an end, that there will be a reversal, that the rich who triumph in this life, the wicked rich people who oppress them, though they triumph in this life, there will be a judgment that comes for them in the next life. And though there is suffering for God's people in this life, there's a great reversal of fortunes, in heaven, where there will be joy unimaginable to God's people that we will inherit. And to draw out exactly what James is trying to get at here, he uses the example of a farmer. We'll see that this is a perfect example that James uses. We can think of what a farmer does. He will sow his seeds, and he'll wait for it to grow. So there's an activeness to what he does, just like we're to be actively patient, setting our mind on the joys of heaven. But there's also a sense in which he has to trust in faith. Once the the farmer sows his seeds, he doesn't just sit there and talk to the seed and say, you need to grow now, grow faster. There's a sense in which he has to trust in the cycle of nature. That when he sows these seeds, he's patient because he waits for the rains to come. The rains that will help grow up the fruit that the farmer is waiting for. And so James commends us to be like the farmer, to trust, to be active, to not be passive, but to then wait and trust that the rains will come, to trust in God's promises, that they will come to fruition and that they are sure. This idea of the early and late rains, James is drawing on really heavy agricultural metaphors from ancient Israel. We can think that this was a really common thing that the Israelites would have been aware of, a very very agrarian country, and so the, late, the early rains would have come sometime in October, November, and the late rains would have happened in April and May. And it's frequent that as they waited for this rain to come, that when the rain did come, it was often a sign of God's faithfulness, that what they had sown grew because the Lord continued to bring the rain both in the early and the late seasons. And so as the farmer sows the seeds actively and he waits and trusts in the Lord's faithfulness, so that is what we are to do in our suffering as well. We're to look beyond just this present world, to not look as if this world is all that there is, but to know that there is a fact of a second coming of Christ that will change our, re- our present reality as we know it and that that will be a joyful day. James goes on in verse 8. He commends them at a slightly different angle. He says, just as the farmer is patient, you also be patient. And then he tells them, secondly, he says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. Again, James is drawing their minds off of the things of this earth, but to the reality of heaven. But there's a slightly different sense in which he's drawing this out here. This is not just a mere repeat of what he said in verse 7. He tells them a new commandment to establish your hearts. We can think about this as a commitment, a firmness, a dedication to our faith. So what James is saying is saying, even in the midst of your suffering, strengthen your faith. Go deeper into God's promises. Don't doubt his goodness, but look to what he's promised you in your words. Set your face towards that and trust in that. In verse 7, James tries to comfort them with the reality of the fact of God's second coming. But here in verse 8, we see that he commends them because of the nearness of God's coming. He says, To establish your heart's trust and faith, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, many of you are, we're all very smart people, and so we have heard that critics will say frequently throughout the New Testament where Paul and James and Peter speak this way, that the coming of the Lord is at hand, that critics of Christianity will ridicule this. They will say that they were deceived. They didn't understand because here we are nearly 2,000 years later reading that James is telling us that the coming of the Lord is at hand and yet we've seen lots of history that has happened since James has written this letter. The Lord has not yet returned. So is that how we're to read it? That Jesus and his disciples, they were wrong about what they said? that indeed the coming of the Lord is not at hand. That's what they thought in their day, but it never came to it never came to a reality. No, I think what James is getting at here is that he's established, he's talking about the second coming of Christ. He's interpreting history redemptively. He has seen that Christ has come in his flesh, accomplished our redemption, and that he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, And at Pentecost, there was a great day in redemptive history where the Lord poured out his spirit upon his people. And yet after the day of Pentecost, the next great event that is to happen is Christ's second return. James reading this, seeing that Christ's second coming is the next great event that's going to happen. And so even though historically we've seen 2,000 years past, he's encouraging us to live as if this is the next great thing that will happen in history, that it is a certain reality that Christ will come again, and we're to strengthen and resolve our hearts towards that end, and to live in light of that reality we're to let that nearness that Christ could return any day shape how we live in the present, He encourages us to be watchful people, to be hopeful people as we wait and suffering, and be even be enabled ever more by the Holy Spirit to pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, for the Lord will indeed return to his people. We're just waiting for that day, but we do so as watchful people, as people with a hopeful anticipation of the blessings that will come to us in Christ on that day. And so James encourages them. He says, establish your hearts at this. Even though all these surroundings around you are difficult, be patient in the midst of them for there's a great day that is surely coming, and be watchful for that day. And yet, as sufferers who live in a fallen world, we know that it's just not quite that easy, is it? That's why James gives us the warning that he does in verse 9. He says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers. We know what it is, even when we're not suffering, to be a grumbling people. And what James is getting at here is not, even, not saying that in our sufferings and our hardships that we're not allowed to talk to anyone, that we need to just keep silent and, and toughen it up and move, keep moving forward. But what James is saying here, what he's giving a warning about, is expressing discontent. It's a type of complaining that he's, he's saying, do not do this to your brothers and sisters. We know that at many times our suffering produces ripe soil for us to be a discontent people to be a people who grumble to one another. We can become our own sovereign judge, interpreting our circumstances and judging other people. Why am I the one who has to suffer? or Why does my child or spouse have to go through this? This should have happened to someone else. How could this ever have happened to me? We can even, in our lowest moments, Question God's goodness and faithfulness to us in our sufferings and say, Lord, as we make ourselves a judge over the Lord, why have you given me this? Why am I suffering? This is wrong. So James warns us about this. He's saying, in your suffering, in your hardships, there's a temptation to grumble. There's a temptation to complain against one another in the Lord. But brothers and sisters, don't do this. And he gives them the reason why. So that you may not be judged. And furthermore, he, he shows the expectation of this, the nearness of this. He says, behold, you will be judged. And the judge is standing at the door. The judge is near. He's right on the other side. You might be thinking, we just talked about the coming of the Lord as a day of triumph. It's not a day of wrath or judgment on God's people. So why does James then move to warning them that they will be judged based on their actions? It's true that there will be a final judgment, but what's really important, what we want to understand, that as we are in Christ, as we are God's people, the final judgment does not determine our salvation, our outcome. That's already secure in Christ. We've already been declared righteous as we are in him, but there is a sense that Christ comes as a judge to all people, both believer and non-believer, and he evaluates their works. We might not think of Christ frequently as a judge, But he will come one day as Revelation portrays him. And he will evaluate the works of both believer and non-believer. And even though it's not for our salvation that is going to determine whether we go to heaven or hell, he does evaluate our works in order that he might give us some sense of reward and also glorify himself. And so James uses this to exhort them to holiness, not to stagnant living. He says, do not grumble one another. It's not that your salvation is on the line but that we are going to have to give an account for every word that we have spoken to our Lord. And it is this coming that Christ, as our judge, is meant to spur them in their sanctification, to deter them away from sin, that they would not grumble, that they would not complain, that they would live in light of that glorious reality of Christ's coming in the vindication of his people and be exhorted, even in the midst of their sufferings, to patience and holy living, And yet, even as we hear this commandment not to grumble, to set our minds on the realities of heaven and Christ's second coming, it's so hard to get our hearts and our heads in this place where we want to be a patient people, where we feel like we are a patient people in our sicknesses and our illness and our hardships. And that is why James draws on concrete examples from Scripture to give us to look to people that suffered patiently and well. He first starts off, he says, as an example of suffering and patience, brother, take the prophets. This was very common around James' time, both in the Bible and outside the Bible, that there are figures who are commended for their faith. They're held up as kind of heroes and examples to emulate. We see this outside of the Bible, but we also see this here in this passage, but we can think of it perhaps most famously in Hebrews chapter 11, that great chapter that we call the Hall of Faith, So many saints of the Old Testament. While we know in those narratives they're not perfect, that they were sinful people, they're commended as examples of their faith. And so here James too draws on these examples to encourage his hearers. He says, "Behold, the prophets; these are a people who are an example of suffering, suffering saints who did so patiently." James does not specify that he has a specific prophet in mind. I'm going to hypothesize he probably does not have Jonah here in mind when he writes this to us, but we can think about the prophet Jeremiah. He's commonly called the suffering prophet, who suffered greatly in his life. Throughout the entire narrative, we see that he is in the depths, both socially, physically, and spiritually. There is immense suffering that happens in the prophet Jeremiah's life. And yet, through it all, through all his suffering, he still holds fast to God's promises, we can think of many of the prophets who had an esteemed office. That's why James holds them up, that they spoke on behalf of the Lord to Israel, and that's why they're an example. They're commended because of their office, and yet they are a godly people who suffered. They're not spared from suffering despite being Christians. Suffering knows no prejudice, and even as we follow Christ, we should expect to suffer. And we can think of many of the prophets who it commends them here, this who says they spoke in the name of the Lord, that they were a godly people who functioned in an important role in God's redemptive history. And yet, as we think about many examples, not just Jeremiah, but as we read the historical books and many of the prophets, they suffer immensely and greatly, even for perhaps speaking in the name of the Lord, they are hated and persecuted. Yet James holds them up as an example and says, despite all this, look to these brothers, look to these prophets as an example of people who suffered well. James then draws it back to his own audience here in the original context, and he says, behold, in thinking about this example, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. This idea of blessed has been interpreted differently in our context today Kids, we can think of Instagram and and social media. We commonly see posts or t shirts or cups that have hashtag blessed on them. That this has become a meaning, an interpretation that when you are blessed, you are happy, that everything is perfect, that there's material prosperity, that there's joy. And yet, the way that James uses it here is not for material prosperity. He's speaking to a suffering people, he's speaking of their relationship to the Lord. This is their covenant relationship to their God. That as we stand in Christ, we consider those who endure to be blessed. That that's God's pronouncement to his people. That even as we are in suffering, even as we are in hardships, that as we cling to his promises and faith, that the pronouncement over us is that we are a blessed people. That we have right standing with our God in Christ Jesus. James earlier at the beginning of the book in verse 12, he says, Blessed is the man who endures, for his will be the crown of life in chapter 1, verse 12. And there's a very similar idea that James is commending here, that as we hold fast to God's promises, that there's a great reward that's coming, that he will preserve his people, that they will hold the crown of life, even in their hardships as they lift their eyes to their future inheritance, that there's a hope that those people are blessed as we stand in Christ. James not only gives the example of the prophets he gives the example of Job as well as someone who is steadfast he says you have heard of the steadfastness of Job some of the translations in the English bible translate this as patience some of some of your bibles might have this some of them might have endurance if your bible does have patience it does naturally raise a question as we read through the book of job was Job really that patient as we read through the narrative we know that he started off really well he has an amazing response to everything he's taken but there's 30 plus chapters that happen in between that and the end of the book and we see that there are numerous instances where Job is not patient where he asks questions of God where he is acting as a self-righteous man before the Lord questioning his intentions to him and his suffering And so we ask the question, is Job the best example of patience that we can be given? And I think there is an encouragement here for us in that it's, my Bible translated as the steadfastness of Job. It's less about his patience and more about his endurance to God's promises despite his suffering. We see that Job does start well that everything is taken from him in one day, his health, his children, his wealth, all these things. And it's just him and his wife. And he declares beautifully at the start of chapter one, he says, naked I came into this world and naked I shall depart. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. And simultaneously in chapter two, when his wife comes to him and says, curse God and die, Job refuses to do that. He holds fast to his integrity and trust in the Lord. And while we see that there are moments of impatience, questions of self-righteousness, that what Job is commended for is his endurance. That even at the end of the book, that though he's been through this immense suffering, these immense trials and hardships, that still throughout the book, in the middle of the book, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the end of the book, he's still holding fast to God's promises, Job is commended for his endurance, that he starts well and finishes well. Because throughout, even though he does so imperfectly, he's holding fast to God's promises. And friends, I think there is a great encouragement that Job is commended. That we are impatient people, that we do struggle in our sufferings. And yet the example that Job is commended for is continuing to trust in God's promises. That that's what we are commended to do as well. That even in our sufferings, in our difficulties in life, that it's about starting and trusting in God's promises of faith, looking outside of ourselves and resting in Christ and continuing to do that over and over the course of our lives. To look to God's promises, that even though our circumstances are bleak, to know that God's promises are true, that they do not fail his people. And so Job is commended here for his steadfastness, for his endurance of holding to God's promises as an example for us. And furthermore, James wraps up our passage today and he says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, that the Lord is compassionate and merciful we see that really it is not so much about Job that he has held fast to his faith. It is him looking in faith to God's promises. But ultimately, in the sufferings and his hardships that the Lord has shown that he preserved Job, he manifested his compassion and his mercy to Job in sustaining him and allowing him to hold fast to his promises. That in the midst of his difficulties and sufferings, the Lord reveals himself to be compassionate and merciful. We hear echoes of Exodus 34, 6 here, when Moses is confronted with God, and God reveals things about his character, and these are two of the attributes he reveals about himself, that he's a compassionate God, that he's merciful, that he's slow to anger. And friends, I just want us to hear this, that this is addressed to sufferers, that they're being told that in the midst of Job's suffering and in their own suffering, that the Lord is compassionate and merciful to them. So often, I think, as we interpret providence, we interpret our sufferings when we're faced with hard circumstances, we somehow think and question or ask, I must have done something to deserve this. That this is God revisiting me on that sin that I committed 20 years ago, and now this is why I'm suffering. But beloved, hear these words that the Lord to sufferers, he's not wrathful, he's not angry, but it pronounces that as God's children suffer, that as a father, he's compassionate and merciful to us. We have seen a demonstration of the Lord's compassion and mercy, not just in the midst of Job's suffering, but in the course of all of human history. We can start very back to the early pages of Genesis and the creation of the world where God creates all things very good. He declares it with the animals and the plants and that he creates Adam and Eve, our first parents, with dominion over all things and just gives them one command. He says, do not eat of this tree. And yet in their temptation and their active rebellion against God, they chose to transgress, to spit in the face of God's goodness to them in creation And yet, is it not right there that we see the Lord's compassion and mercy? That when he visits them to confront them about what they've done, there is first a promise of his son that would come and crush the head of the serpent. And then the common curse is pronounced upon them. God first comes in compassion and mercy. We know that in his holiness and justice, he would have been perfectly righteous to have left Adam and every other person that came after him, every sinner on this earth To eternal damnation, that he would have been perfectly just to do so. And yet we see that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He gives them a promise of a Messiah that would come. We see this time and time again with Israel. Right after, basically, right after they are brought out of Egypt, after they've cried out and grumbled in the wilderness all along the way. They say that Moses is taking too long. Let's take things into our own hands. And they make a golden calf for themselves. Again, the Lord would have been perfectly righteous and just in his righteous anger to wipe them out, to start over with a new people. And yet we see that he's compassionate and merciful to them. And time and time again... The Lord has demonstrated his great compassion and mercy to sinners, that he has not left us to our own devices, but out of an abundance of his love and mercy, his fatherly tenderness, he sends forth his one and only Son to reconcile sinners to himself. That though we were by nature children of wrath, he came and sent his Son to suffer the wrath of the cross and the curse of this world on our behalf for our sins in order that we might not be children of wrath, but sons and daughters of the living God. His compassion is shown to us and that Christ died for us while we were not his friends, while we were not his acquaintances, while we were his enemies. The gospel demonstrates so clearly the compassion and mercy of God to us in Christ Jesus that he has not just wiped us out, but that he endures with us as sinners, that he sent his son for us on our behalf. As we rest in this gospel, it encourages us in the midst of our sufferings, that there is a greater reality of this world that is to come. The joys of heaven, because of the gospel of Christ Jesus, we will be welcomed into paradise. That as we've walked through all the sufferings, the difficulties, the loss of loved ones in life, that Christ, on that final day, wipes away every tear and welcomes us into a presence that's absent of the sufferings of this world, that's absence of sickness, of death, of suffering. We talked about how we can have suffering even in the midst of most difficult times, and yet we live, we live in a world that's more impatient than ever. And yet, as we reflect on the gospel, as we relate to one another, we see God's compassion and patience and mercy manifested to us. This should shape how we live and love one another. That if the Lord is patient with us time and time again, as we struggle with even the same sins decades and decades at a time, that we can be compassionate as as Izzy prayed and merciful to one another. The patience and forgiveness of the Lord should shape how we live and relate to one another, but can also encourage in us, brothers and sisters, hope and patience, even in the midst of difficulties. That God has poured out his spirit on us, that his Holy Spirit dwells in us, and is the guarantee, is the down payment that we will be welcomed into heaven, that our salvation is secure. But we know in our sanctification that the Spirit works in us, the fruit of the Spirit. And one of the fruits that he works in us is patience. And as we suffer, as we wait for our glorious hope in Christ, we rest in Christ by faith alone that he would work in us by his Spirit to make us a patient people in our hardships and suffering, that we would be a joyful people even despite our circumstances. That this would be a wonderful and a bright testimony to a world that is so impatient in times of trivial things. That we show forth to the world that our hope is greater than just this world. That we're awaiting the joys of heaven and that we can be patient because of what Christ has accomplished for us in the gospel. The Spirit works in us, producing in us patience and hope. Brothers and sisters, as we long for that day of Christ more and more, his second return, let us trust in his promises that he's given to us in his word. Let us look to them in faith anew. Let us turn from the ways that we've grumbled, looking to Christ. And let us pray that the Spirit would work in us patience, that we might be a testimony to a fading and perishing world who's impatient in the midst of everything. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, suffering is so difficult and it can feel endless and hopeless at times, Lord, but I pray that by the promises of your word that you would lift our eyes in faith to you, the God who is unchangeable, who is faithful, who is true in his promises, that we know that this world is not all that there is, that we would wait with the patience with the eager expectation of your second coming and be enabled all the more by your spirit to pray, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. For we long for that day to be redeemed, to be in heaven in our perfect presence with you, Lord. We thank you for this hope. But Lord, we do pray that in the midst of our sufferings, Lord, that you would bring encouragement in the fact that you are a compassionate and merciful God. And Father, as a church, that you would make us a community who weeps with those who weep, and rejoice with those who rejoice, that we would walk alongside one another, encouraging one another in the midst of our sufferings and hardships, all the while reminding ourselves of the promises that you have given to us in your word. That We pray that you would do a work in us by your spirit. We know that apart from your spirit, no, no fruit can happen, Lord, but we pray, Lord, that you would make us a patient people in all circumstances and a joyful people, Lord. We pray and ask all these things in the matchless and most beautiful name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.